Okay, so let's get the mood going here. Imagine it, the coffee machine is bubbling and gurgling away in the corner. There's wood in the hearth, but no fire, even though winter is on its way. The smell of musty paper and the subtle sweetness of vanilla is in the air, and you're gathered with some of your closest book friends to talk about your latest find. I'm Ray, and welcome to another episode of Not Before Coffee, The Bookshop, where I talk about my most recent reads and possibly, hopefully, encourage you to pick up a copy. This week I have a special guest as we're going to be talking about one of our joint favourite books by Neil Gaiman, Good Omens, though it's obviously written by Terry Pratchett too, we cannot forget him. Chance from Strive, Seek, Find podcast. Hi Chance, how are you? Great, thanks for having me. My pleasure. (laughs) It is one of those books, isn't it? You either have read it and loved it or you haven't read it, therefore you don't know you're going to love it. Well, more people need to read it. It's one of those books that I keep, it's one of the ones that I rate by how many copies I've had stolen from me when I loan it out to other people. I think American Gods is the one that I've lost a couple of copies of, to be honest. That's on my list as well. Those are probably my top two as far as, well, that one's never coming back. Yeah, and normally it's, you ask someone and they say, oh, Did you loan that to me? Sorry, I must have lost it in the move. Or it fell apart when I was reading it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't believe that excuse for a minute. (laughs) They're just not giving it up because they enjoy it so much. Yeah, I agree with that one. So Chance, before we get into the book itself, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your podcast? It's one I really love listening to. It's in a sort of a snippet that you can listen to at any point during the day. Well, Strive, Seek, Find is kind of a short form lifestyle advice, I guess. is probably the best way to put it because we tend to be broad. We talk about how to make our, well, I say we, I'm going to, I guess I'm using the royal we there, but it is the uh, trying to make our own brilliant future, figuring out a better way forward in life and little things that catch my eye and catch my attention. I talk about them and hopefully add something to the discussion of how to make your life better. Yeah, I I can see that. There's so many different things you talk about. And obviously you introduced a brand new section or a brand new segment, an episode type when you launched your second season where you were talking oh, to ten- other people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 this last season, I a- a- added in with the uh, 10 questions where I let people talk about what they're most passionate about. And in 10 questions, um, so far, I've talked about podcasting and fishing poles and coaching baseball. And these aren't my interests. These are these people's interests. And they're sharing with our listeners uh, that, exactly what they, th- they think about those things, how they get into them, and what makes that their passion. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, they are. I mean, I I am not a person who is interested in fishing, but I listened to the entire episode and it was fascinating because you can clearly tell that he was passionate about that particular subject. 
And that one was probably the biggest surprise for me of anything I've recorded so far because we went in and we had originally talked because he was also a home brewer and a pr pretty accomplishment, uh, accomplished one. And when we started talking right before we went on, he says, why don't we focus on the, uh, the, fishing, is, uh, the fishing poles instead and just took off with it. And I've known Rudy for... 10 or 15 years and I had no idea about any of that I learned a lot about somebody I know at that point that's nice though to find out something a whole different facet to their personality and their interests but I think Great. that's what I think that's what anything should be about really finding out new things about somebody which is why it was so good when I, I said to you I'd really like to talk to you about books and it's like oh good omens <laughs> Perfect choice. One of my top five faves. I think it is one of those books and it sounds weird. It's one of those books that's been adapted really well as well. It made a difference in my reading this time when I reread for this because I can't read it without hearing the actors who played the roles on the Amazon Prime version in my head as I'm reading because that's not how they sounded before. No, I agree. It, there are certain elements that I was reading and I think I, I read it on my Kindle and I was making notes all the way through. And at certain points, all I, could, all I kept on writing was, I can really hear David Tennant here. Agreed. It, it just it changed the way I read and felt about Crowley. Yes. There was something about his character... In the book before, you sort of, well, I interpreted him as a little bit manipulative and smarmy and everything else. And then you read it again after having seen the show, which was done so well. And Neil Gaiman clearly had involvement in it. Yes. And all you could, all you could see was the actions and the different motivations behind it all. It was a lot more three. He was a lot more three-dimensional character after seeing David Tennant in the role. He, okay, he owned the role. He owns the show actually more than anything there, and it it brought new life to the book, and it makes it even more scary for me that the idea that they're going to try to make a sequel for it. Yeah, I saw. I did see the notification for the sequel arrive on Amazon's channel on YouTube and my in fact I think the first thing I did was sent you a message saying why are they doing this <laughs> yeah we had a little conversation about it right away worried that uh worried about this because otherwise what are they going to do to something that they did right and and ended how bad could they mess up what they'd done and the thing was it ended it had a very definitive ending so when you see that they are making a sequel, it's like, but they, they, they stopped the end of the world. <laughs> what, what happens next? I mean, what's going to happen? Are they going to bring Adam back? Are they going to bring back Newton Pulsifer? Are they going to bring back oh, everyone? Or are they just going to continue? Is it going to be the study of the relationship with, of Aziraphale and Cowley? Crowley now that the end of the world has been averted is it going to be what they foreshadowed it's going to be us versus the uh, versus humanity what made this work in a lot of ways was 
how small they made the end of the world. Yes, it was a tiny, it was a tiny little battle. And if they go too big, it's it's not going to work. Amazon may throw that kind of money at uh, Lord of the Rings, and but they're not going to throw that kind of money at Good Omens. They don't need to. No, that's the thing. I think the book was written that way, and I one of the things that I've taken away from the book far more this time than I did in previous readings. And if you've seen my copy of Good Omens, it's well loved, very well loved. It's in pieces, and it's one of the original one, one of the older paperback versions without the TV tie-in cover and one of the things that I took away from it far more this time was how clearly inspired they were by Douglas Adams and I'm not a huge huge Adams reader so I didn't catch that uh, tell me a little more about that if you want well it was it was the mentions of the intelligence of dolphins and whales and all of that, those observations regarding nature that made it very clear. And also the slight, well, not even the slight undertone of humor, the baseline humor that was used throughout the book was very clearly Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There were so many, not direct references to it, but the way that it was written was clearly Pratchett and Gaiman saying, we got our inspiration from... Douglas Adams, who was the epitome of this kind of science fiction fantasy humor. And now that you mention, I'm thinking back to when them were talking about the dolphins and the whales. Yeah. And and the way that went down and big brains and then the conversation gets cut off and Adam, Adam moves on to his next interest. And they're talking about and there's also the talk of mice. You're right. <laughs> there are so clear so many clear references to Douglas Adams. And if you haven't read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, do. It's amazing. It is very, very cleverly done. And it's really funny. I'm going to have to pull. I haven't read it in probably years and years and years. I'm going to have to pull it out again. It's one of those. It's one of those books. It's very like Good Omens in the way that it handles stuff. Because this is all looked at through the eyes of an 11-year-old boy in many ways we get obviously we immediately observe the main characters as being Aziraphale and Crowley but they aren't the central character in all of this is the antichrist Adam Young who is actually Adam Young by accident rather than intention it's the end of the world being prevented by people being incompetent at their jobs not much more human than that (laughs) Very much so. And it all starts on a dark and damp and dreary night in a hospital run by satanic nuns. And the special part of these satanic nuns are they are a chattering order. So (laughs) by definition, they would have to be a little bit annoying to be around. And they also completely misunderstand everything. Because Crowley arrives with the Antichrist, who is supposed to be given as a child to an American diplomat and his wife. Unfortunately, a Mr. Young is there with his wife, who showed up at the hospital on the same night by accident. And they misinterpret Mr. Young's presence and believe him to be 
the American ambassador. But I think what's best... (laughs) Oh, go ahead. Sorry. But I think what's best about it is it is such a confused conversation because he's recently changed jobs and he's she's saying, oh, well, you don't have the act. You don't sound as I expected you to. Have you been here long? And he's thinking about his recent move from Luton. And just the the bit about, I think you call these cookies when when they're trying to hand, hand out biscuits at the at the, the hospital. No, when we he asks, call them biscuits too. Yeah, when he asks for tea, and she says, "Are you sure you don't want coffee? Because don't you drink coffee? No, I want tea. <laughs> oh, you're really settling into being English. So, <laughs> but of course, Mister Young is English." And there is a spare baby who you get glimpses. You do get glimpses of spare baby in the future. And it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of very subtle inference there as far as it, you're not sure it's really the kid until the very end of the book when they just make, they have a line that makes it very direct why there's the conflict with the, between that kid and them. Yes. The bu- he's the bully, his surname's Johnson. And the Greasy Johnson gang, yes, the Johnson. Jo- exactly. Greasy Johnson and his friends. And there is a lot of antagonism between them. It's it is one of those books that every time I read it, I notice different things. And I like that about a book. There were things that when I reread this time that I had so I, gotten used to what had happened I rewatched Amazon Prime right before I read it so I've watched that two or three times now and there are things that I had so gone over in my head that it surprised me in the book this time um the four horsemen for instance uh I the the fact that they didn't talk about the difference between pollution and pestilence as much as as I would have they didn't talk, get into the whole retirement thing I really missed that yeah. when I watched it, but I'd forgotten that in the book that uh, pollution was a young male, and in the book, in the, the it'd been recast or regendered in the movie into a, a, a young female. I think the thing with um, it's quite interesting is pestilence. It well, pollution is this young upstart, but his, the effects are in the book very very subtle. And almost, it's kind of like, you're going to overlook these things because they just happen. And it was almost like a subtle, this is what happens in reality, in real life. We miss the the pestilence and we miss the pollution because they are just things we take for granted happen. And then, of course, famine. Famine was genius. Yes, Fabian was genius because it played so well off of uh, what our what our modern cultures are. It plays off fast food. It plays it plays off of the the need for weight loss and and artificial everything, all yeah. wrapped up into a a brilliant little package where he's like, "There's no more nutritional value in this than gnawing on the side of the table." Yeah. But the, in the book, the line is there's less nutritional value in this than there is a Sony Walkman. You're right. I just saw that one. Couldn't remember it. The it, and the joy that that is obvious in 
famine's face by being able to trick people into starving themselves and eventually remember the 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 uh, part where he, in the footnotes could cause skin miscoloration, hair loss, and eventually death. Yeah. It is ve- it's very, very, yeah, it's very, very clever. And then, of course, war always has a name that is reminiscent of the color red. So she's Scarlet, then she's Carmine, and she's a war journalist. For a tabloid. Which made yes, it even better. For a, exactly. And there are so many little clever bits like that that you wouldn't necessarily overlook, but as part of the whole, they go on to make the story even better. Especially when it, I mean, they talk about she decides to be a war correspondent, gets this tabloid to take over and do it. And it talks about what poor war correspondent she actually is because she's interested in the death, destruction, the mayhem. She's not finding side stories. So they generally just circular file her stories and then occasionally hand one over to someone to tabloid up about having seen the Virgin Mary at the battle or something to the the impact. It just makes it, they're paying for her to do what she's going to do anyways. And they're a little embarrassed because they're not sure how, how they got her and how she's going to get there. But she's always first on the scene when war breaks out. Well, mostly because she's at the center of it all. I mean, at the end of it, in the TV show, they had her at peace talks when she was given her, when her sword was presented. And in the book, she's at a similar meeting and she is so exuberant when her sword is delivered. Finally! It was that massive exclamation. And they're like, oh, you're not going anywhere. And they're going to shoot her. And she's like, go ahead. (laughs) And that was in that, it was in a bar on a vacation island that she, when she'd been there for three days, broke out into civil war after a thousand years of peace. And And they were talking, no, it's ours. No, it's ours. And they were all protesting. It's it's ours. It's ours. It's ours. (laughs) She's just standing there. I don't care who gets it kill each other this just makes yeah. me happy and they were invading the, the bar because they needed the uh the they were there for the wine cellar for the victory celebration so it was a really good reason to be fighting a civil war of course what wine <laughs> need more wine <laughs> yes but she she got so much joy out of it. it i found it very very interesting that in the book only one of the horse men horse people were female and it was war very interesting proposition and she was the most vicious out of the bunch oh yes she was the most active i mean death i felt so sorry for the poor delivery guy he knew what he had to do but at the same time it's like he's just the last thing he tell he sends a letter to his wife saying i love you deliver the message don't look at it as if you, you, you're you're dying young. Look at it as if you're getting an early start. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing. As far as they're concerned, they've been summoned to end the world. You know, there, it brought home. There's several things that were brought home to me that I really missed on the series. And one of those was when the, the actual journey of the four horsemen is extended in the book, obviously. But then yeah. the other four horsemen of the apocalypse who try to who realize who they are, but 
since they're bad bikers, want to try to tag along and hang. <laughs> That's the thing that, as I said, there is so much dimension to everything in the book. And a lot of it is translated really well. This book was almost written to be made into a TV show. It could never have been a film. Oh, no. It would have Two been hours. a really disappointing film. Two hours would have been... We'd all been sitting there going, what? Because there wouldn't have been space for the characters to breathe. I mean, just the moments like um, with Shagwell. And, uh, oh, no. That would have been totally lost on the cutting room floor because that character is just hilarious. Playing both sides to make a little bit of money and yet having enough honor and belief to want to chase down the situation. We'd have lost a, a, a hilarious and yet completely complex character if we'd have tried to do this in two hours. He needed space to breathe and grow. Yeah, he did. I think all of the characters needed that element of space. I found I loved Dog <laughs> because his his internal monologue was so every once in a while he'd be fighting against what Adam was telling him to do. My master's told me to do this. And you get that little note that said, and he felt a little bit of hell chip away. When And they managed to do that once in the miniseries, but the rest of the time it just kind of got lost. But I think um, it's very, very difficult to do the internal monologue without a narrator. Yeah. And you don't want to overdo that. In a, no. in a television series because it would so get irritating it, yeah show don't tell right exactly it was it was done very well in the radio show i have to say the radio play did the internal monologue very well because there was kind of necessity for a narrator in that instance but i think that having a narrate an overarching narrator in a tv show can oh overcomplicate things Agreed. And you, and you lose those, that attention to detail that you get, like watching, actually watching the, 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 the characters, like just the small looks between Tenet and Sheen, it, 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 whether it's during the uh, French Revolution scene, for instance, it would have been totally lost if you'd had a narrator in that. Yeah, you needed to see that. And the thing is, they work, they play so well off each other. And they do they have the same impact in the book those two characters i mean there's one line they're talking about aziraphale and they're talking about how there are three things about that people assume about him one that he's gay and the second that he's british and the third that he's intelligent only one of these is true and then they get, he goes into the explanation of why the other two aren't true mm-hmm. and one of them is because uh, Angels don't have sexuality unless they're really trying. And the other one was, they all say, all angels sound the same. But he is intelligent. And, <laughs> but he is intelligent. And it, then it even took it a step further and explained, not so much more than human, but has had a lot more time to think about things. Exactly. And another thing I liked in the series that I don't think they played on so much in the book was Agnes Nutter. Yes. Josie Lawrence was amazing as her because she is kooky as anything in real life. But the character of Agnes Nutter wasn't used 
the same way in the book. She was, she was in a way, she was like the, um, the precognizant narrator of certain elements of it, but she, not she, as she, much. She hung over the book in a totally different way. She brought yes. weight to the book. In she really, the book was there in the in the series, but her weight wasn't there. They didn't yeah. talk directly at her so much in the in the the miniseries the way they you could feel her presence all the way through the book. Exactly, and I liked her character. I liked the fact that they made her seem like a character that you could relate to, when in actual fact she was someone who died years, hundreds of years before these predictions came to, into play. But and she was st still meddling. Had, still meddling, and was still concerned. You know, you know, believable in the fact that her visions worked best when it was about her family. So yes. there was that connection that kept her grounded on some level. Well, that was the thing. I I was reading through, and there are certain elements that they obviously had to change and update because they were filming it during the two thousands rather than in the eighties when the book was very clearly based. And that was the mention of do not invest, do not buy Betamax. Which she spelt incorrectly, by the way. Yeah. But in the in the series, it was invest in Apple. Invest. It was something to do with invest in a fruit. Yeah, and they 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 hit that, and they left out these this the stuff about the great great grandfather changing the investments right before the stock market crash in uh, was it the nineteen nineteen twenties nineteen twenty nine I think. Yes. Isn't it 1929? And then it obviously is. the mentions of gadget and device. Oh, they do you really think they were named they were named after nothing? <laughs> and the the whole thing, the whole playoff of uh trying to remember the one that the ability of some of these where that you, you read the side notes on the prophecies with through the years. Yes. And the where they where they're talking about the guesses from the eighteen hundred from for hundreds of years what the real meaning of these different prophecies are and they only become really obvious when you're living them. Yeah. Well that was the thing. She's um they quite often in the book they're mentioning how the prophecies don't become clear until after the events have happened, which is why certain things were missed. And that's why she wasn't a very good prophet. Uh, prophet. That's why she wasn't a very good prophet. Yeah, because they were all right instead of being all wrong. Yeah. And they talked. They talked about with Nostradamus and several others that they either had filtering mechanisms like drugs or alcohol or whatever, or that heaven or hell put out a put static out so that they wouldn't get clear visions. And somehow they had missed Agnes in the in all of this. Yeah, I lo I also love the fact that Agnes only sent the book for publication so she could get her author's copy. You know, I would live with that if I could get to author's copy, even if it didn't sell anything. If I could get my stories out there, I would do the same thing. Yeah, but she only wanted the author's copy so she could have a copy to pass down to her children. Yeah, it's not like she got to well. I was going to say, not like you really got to spend much time with it, considering how she ended up. <laughs> yeah, so she didn't really want it for herself. Didn't test my memory here, but uh, 
didn't they switch it in the book from the, the from the book to the series where in the book she was she had the book delivered to her son in the move in the it wasn't delivered to a, a daughter and it had her husband then getting involved that we have to listen to your mom yeah the, and the then series. at the very end uh, ah, see i think i now have figured out how they're going to do the next series because at the tell. very well at the very end of the of the series they have another delivery that's been kept for hundreds of years and it's the further prophecies of agnes nutter in the book they burn it don't they i think so so it, they, and they were looking sitting by a in the background of this the final episode they're sitting next to a fire with it so it i'm i'm wondering well they have that to do something it would be a good way to continue on, though. If she saw, if she foresaw the end of the world, what's she seeing after it? <laughs> She's moving more chess pieces into place. Maybe I mean, we know that, for instance, Adam still has at least some semblance of his power. This is true, but he's used his power for good. I mean, that's a, this is, I think, this is one of the biggest arguments of the entire book. Nature versus nurture. Yeah, that, and that's, that makes total sense. Because even if you look at what happens to Warlock, who is Weird. raised... Oh, what a kid. First off, <laughs> who, gets talk, who gets talked into naming their kid Warlock? An American that is on her own and being pressured by people after giving birth. There we go, but the the way that kid ended up when being child by being raised by un, inattentive parents, and you have the the angel and the demon working both sides of them, and yep. you end up with a, just a classic spoiled little brat, and the kid who is raised in a normal home ends up very different. He was given boundaries. Adam was given a lot of boundaries. And he didn't tend to cross them very often. But he was also a, a clearly intended to lead because he is the child that all of them, even before he sort of pressed his power, he was the one that they always looked to for guidance. He was the one they, they sort of checked with almost to say, well, should we do this? Can we do this? Do you think this is true? And... When you have that, but then you have that moment in the both the book and the movie where he goes, um, movie series, excuse me, but where he says when he's handing out where everybody's going to be in the aftermath of the the end of the world, he goes, "What are you getting?" And he, he he's happy and content with what he had. Yeah, and that I think that is the ultimate thing there. He is con his contentment and his love of a place and of and love of people. As much it was probably the most important thing to how he turned out. Well, that's the thing. All he wanted for his birthday was a dog. It was in a, in a way. I mean, that's it can be a, a, obviously a quite costly thing and can be quite frustrating for a parent. But at the same time, he wanted some very he wanted something very very simple. He wanted very a dog. Grounded. Yeah, yeah. And he was and trying to train it the right way. And because you, you have that scene with with Agnes, where he's like, 
it's like, oh, it's okay if he stays out in the garden. Oh, no, he needs to learn to obey so yeah. that, he, he, that he's a good dog. Yeah, and that was the bit where the dog is, he, he looked at him and he whined and he felt another piece of hell fall away. That was the bit where it said that and it was like, oh. In fact, I think I even wrote it in my notes. Because it was just, there were so many elements that were just so cute. And and worked together, even for something, this could have very easily been a very dark book. And it wouldn't have worked that way. No. But they couldn't, the humor and the, the realness of the characters make it work. Exactly. That's the thing. I mean, even with, you know that Aziraphale and Crowley love humanity and they like what being on earth affords them they like the lifestyle Crowley loves his Bentley which I think they got down absolutely perfectly in the tv series but he loves his Bentley he loves his queen but I did love I think there was one of the lines that was earlier on in the book where Aziraphale gets in the car and he picks up a, a cassette deck a cassette And it's like, oh, Tchaikovsky. And Crowley says, it's been in the car for more than two weeks, so you won't like it. Because it immediately turns into rock music. It it all turns into, yeah. Every album becomes basically Queen's greatest hits. Yeah. (laughs) And I love the fact that with the way he talks Aziraphale into, maybe we should do something about this, is, so, how many good composers do they have in heaven? And they can only name two. Well, it's the thing because they only have two. And he says, could you cope with living, listening to Elgar forever? And that has him thinking. It's like, no. (laughs) Makes him drink faster. He goes, oh, God, no. (laughs) I would would like their ability to get sober, though. Oh, yeah. And the way they showed that is just because in the book, it's just a simple thing. And they were sober. In the show, they just... The bottles of wine refilling were just brilliant. That's the thing in the book. In the book, it says they shake it off, so you actually mm-hmm. can see them. You can see them if you re- read the words. I mean, the right way most avid readers do anyway. You can actually see that the movement of them shaking it off, and mm-hmm. getting rid of it, and they find it an unpleasant process. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have in the in the. Yeah, I, I, they, there's no win, no lose, and now and they're both unpleasant. Exactly. <laughs> but instantaneous sobriety would be handy. Yes, I think I'd quite like instant sobriety after a night on the town. Even in my 20s, I'd have liked instant sobriety after a night on the town. Because then you don't waste the next day recovering. Yeah, the, the, the pain of the piper is sometimes worse than anything else. Yeah, and when you get into your 40s hangovers last two days at least it hurts <laughs> a lot it's so painful and it's worse when you remember how quick and easy it was when you were in your 20s yeah and the fact that you that, that quote-unquote cures took care of itself and uh you know hot salsa and a mountain dew and i should be great i can just go about my business now it's like just let me stay in bed i don't want to even think about moving and the problem is now you're at the age where you can't just stay in bed and recover. Give me two paracetamol and some Pepto and a cup of tea or coffee and six hours of peace and quiet. Dream on. 
<laughs> You've Let's got housework. <laughs> it's time to go to work. Oh. <laughs> when did I get drunk? Three days ago. Really? <laughs> I don't think that the crime is... The, the, I don't think the crime is worse the punishment I'm feeling right now. <laughs> exactly. So you, you, that's the thing. I think that they're ability to get sober so quick is really good but I love the relationship that they have in the book it is so friendly and it's I think they say in the book they say I have an enemy but I've no he's been my enemy for 6,000 years so now he's my friend yes and there's there's other lines that talks that were um Aziraphale specifically talks about the the, the fact that he is most definitely is closer to anyone, to Crowley, than he is anyone up the chain for him because Crowley almost understands him, whereas everyone in heaven does not. Well, that's the thing. Crowley understands him because Crowley is living in the same way. Look at the relationship he has with the demons when they first hand over the Antichrist. And they are so dismissive of him, but at the same time, they haven't been up on earth in the time that Crowley has. And they even make the comment saying that, oh, he's he's been here so long now, he was here right at the very beginning. And I, that saying the very, very beginning does remind me of the rewrites to the misprint of the Bible that Aziraphale put in it. <laughs> that are actually, yeah, covering, oh, the fl- the flaming sword that Adam and Eve got as they left the Garden of Eden, which he should never have given them. And when God asked him where it was, he said he didn't know. And God never mentioned it again. Yes. <laughs> it's and those it was little things. Mr. Crowley's hand because he had made other corrections in other parts of the Bible. Yeah, that was, that was it that I loved those little elements of it because it's not dismissive of religion at the same time. That's the thing. I mean, I found it very, very interesting. Neil Gaiman apparently grew up in a Scientology household. He grew up not far from here, not far from where I live, because there's a Scientology. The UK head court, head office for Scientology is actually in Sussex, and he grew up in a Scientology household, which I found quite interesting when I was doing my research. I, I had no idea about that. He, uh, uh, to not be dismissive of religion then is interesting. Yeah. Because, the, and, and it makes, considering some of the, the time and thought he's put into this book and several of his others, makes it really interesting the depth he gets into it. Yeah, it's, it's as though he took the time to study and understand it because he didn't want to cause effect. I mean, the funny thing is, when you think about some of the other properties he's written... Look at, for example, all the characters in American Gods. Yes. And then Anansi Boys. And then Mm -hmm. you look at, he created John Constantine and Lucifer for DC. For DC in his Vertigo days. Yeah, exactly. So he has had a hand in creating a considerable number of of characters with religious connotation and background. And not one of them has been treated with disrespect. Now, but he also is not afraid to take them in very interesting directions. Uh, 
Constantine's um, rough around the edges approach yeah. to all of it, where he, because Constantine's not terribly, he understands his role in everything. He's not terribly respectful to either side of the equation. But that, um, but then that is showing a sign of I'm not disparaging anyone, rather than I'm insulting you on intentionally because I disbelieve this or that I think is rubbish. He's not, he never says, oh, this is a crock of something steaming. He, no. he doesn't, he's not touting for either side of the argument. The equation at that point. Well, and then you look at American Gods and he originally, and even in the 10th anniversary edition, left uh, the, the section that he wrote with uh, Jesus completely out of the book. And then it, it appeared kind of as a, in the afterword, in the 10th anniversary, or I think it's now the author's preferred text, he includes it afterwards so that you can see the section, the, the scene he wrote between Jesus and Shadow. But it doesn't fit the rest of the narrative well enough that it makes sense to include it. So he cut that's, it. That's the thing. The American God's narrative is very much the old gods and the old world, but it's not Christianity. Exactly. Because you've and got so it, the Norse gods... You've got the more modern, in a way, you've got the gods that people worship as in technology and media. Mm -hmm. So, and they are in a way, though they aren't gods specifically, they are the things that people worship. Therefore, in his universe, in the universe that he created for American gods, they were being worshipped as deities. Mm -hmm. You know, in a polytheist, polytheistic world. And it brilliantly worked. And I think if we, if he had included that other piece, people would have oh. vacillated just on that mo moment. And the, the, the rest of the book would have been lost to the majority of readers. Yeah, exactly. So he, he knows his audience and he's very, very clever with how he does things. And that came through. I, I think a lot of the humor or far more of the humor was Pratchett than it was Gaiman. And I have limited experience with Pratchett. This seems to be my about as far into him as I, I really read. I'd read Nation. I'm still reading that one. I am going to talk about it at a later date. But he's he has got a... I'd say that he has a Douglas Adams thread to him. But he likes to create his own universes. He likes his the world that he created. Mm-hmm. And I, I just found it interesting, even when you, you look at it, the the, the respect that the, both of these authors have to be able to work together this way. And some of the things that you hear about their, uh, their radio interviews and whatnot that came right after this as they were trying to prep the book and the way people respond to it, there just seems to be a love all the way around of the property, starting with Gaiman himself, with Pratchett, and then into the fans. Because yeah. even now, when when, he, when he's talking about why they want to go through for a season two, he says, well, when Terry Pratchett and I talked about this, they, we decided years ago there wouldn't be another book. If there was a sequel, it would be a series. Yeah, and that's, that's I think, my concern with the series is I'd prefer a book. But then you look at, Gaiman has a history of doing, well, he has done this in the past because Neverwhere was a TV series that he did with Lenny Henry before it was a book. 
yet Neverwhere Reads is an amazing book. It does. It's one of my favorites. But it was a TV now, series for the BBC long before, well, not long before, I think about a year before it was a book. I have never seen it. I have heard about it. I've seen a few clips off of the uh, off of YouTube, but never seen it from beginning to end. And I haven't dug too deep in it because of the love I have for the book. Yeah, I, I listened to that. They did, for, I think, for about three or four years on the on the radio. They did, they did Good Omens. They did Neverwhere. They did American Gods. They did Nancy Boys, and all of them were amazing radio plays. Well, I need to dig those up too. I wonder if they're on Audible right now. Probably are because be- they were made by the BBC. Take a look. The uh, the range there, the range you get in this book, the range you get in his other books, is incredible, and that's one of the things I appreciate. You're not going to get the same experience from this book or the series that it was heavily involved in as you get from American Gods or you get from Ocean at the End of the Lane. One of the things that I think makes him genius is his ability to make the mundane seem magical. Yeah, look at Coraline, which was creepy. And that was one of his books. He is he's an adaptable author and working with Terry Pratchett brought the best out in both of them. This was one of those books that you can read time and time again and find something different every single time because you're going to read something and notice it and then you're going to read on because you've just noticed that bit, the next bit is going to blend into it and then you're going to read that the next time and notice something completely different and that's what I love about books in general but this one is very very good at doing that which is how these books end up on my reread list so often (laughs) exactly I think this is the second time I've reread this this year I I used to tell I was it's the first time I actually have two copies on the shelf of this because somebody had borrowed a copy 10 years ago and returned it over the summer. But I had picked up a copy to read on the plane back from uh, a trip like right before COVID. And so I do have one of the copies with the, the TV on it, but I also have a really old copy that I didn't still know I had on the shelf. Yeah, I lo- I, it sounds weird. I love those old copies because they are so, especially if you reread them as often as obviously we both do, they are, they look well-loved. Yes. With a lovely creased spine. They, they talked about people bring, Gaiman in it talked about at one point, the number of people that brought copies of this book that were originally printed that were down to just pages in a box for them to sign. (laughs) Uh, I can totally see it. Yes. So can I, because there is something about it. It's, it's like Agnes Nutter and her prophecies and her predictions. It's one of those books that is going to, as long as you keep it in the right order, it's still going to read the same. And you're still going to get something out of it. <laughs> exactly. Well, it has been amazing talking to you about this because, well, we had a lot to talk about regarding just this one thing. So <laughs> where can people where can people find your podcast? And your social. 
So you can find uh, Strife Seeks Vine basically anywhere you can get podcasts. I'm active on Twitter at, at under at Chance Whitmore dot Chance Whitmore five, excuse me, not dot com. Uh, I also have a uh, Strife Seek Find uh, group on Facebook that is fairly active and growing, and uh, to a lesser extent, a much lesser extent on Instagram. Uh, hoping that uh, my web page will be up eventually. I just haven't quite finished it yet. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It was my absolute pleasure. It really was. It's fun to talk with someone about a book that they they enjoy it as much as I do. Well, That's exactly. <laughs> well, I hope you all enjoyed the episode and will come back again for more. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a review or give the show a star rating over on Podchaser. No feedback is bad feedback if it's constructive. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs or on Instagram at not before coffee podcast. Well, I have definitely now got to go and pick another book from the shelf. It won't be Neil Gaiman, unfortunately, and settle down with another hot drink for the evening. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.